Hi, Monica Lopez here. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you to consider supporting independent media and making contact by becoming a donor. We know we're not the only podcast you listen to, but we certainly do hope we're among the group that's worth giving to. And your donation is tax deductible. So visit our website at radioproject.org. And now, here's the show. Making, making, making contact. Making contact. <laughs> I'm Salima Hamarani, and on today's Making Contact. Every decision CDC made during that time to even contain it was all wrong and, and uncaring. We're airing part two of our series, The Pandemic Inside, COVID and Prisons. We talk about re-entry and what happens to people released in the middle of a global pandemic. To finally get out and not know about this pandemic, not know how to protect yourself, and you die right away, you just never had a chance. And we take a look at pretrial detention in Florida jails. Most organizers working in this space are advocating for an end to pretrial detention because they understand that money bail is only one part of it. Welcome to part two of our series. So in part one, we talked about COVID spreading like wildfire through San Quentin and other prisons in California and how prisons essentially act like super spreader events, infecting the surrounding communities. We also talked about why organizers and prisoners are calling for mass releases as the only real humane way to fight the pandemic. But as we were compiling this piece last year, news broke that scientists had developed multiple highly effective vaccines. Tonight, a second vaccine is likely just days away after an FDA review confirmed Moderna's vaccine is just as effective as Pfizer's with 94% efficacy. Apparently preventing... So we wanted to start by talking about vaccines because mass immunization could stop the pandemic in prisons if everyone was vaccinated. And yet, almost everyone I spoke to had the reservations. Here's why. I think it's perfectly okay to mandate the vaccine of people who are employed and choose employment out of their own will. But people who are incarcerated against their will can't be required to take the vaccine. That's Hadar Abiram, a lawyer working on litigation about the treatment of prisoners in California during COVID-19. The problem with, with vaccinating the incarcerated people themselves is a little bit more complicated because we have to keep in mind that there is a very long and sad legacy of horrific medical experiments and exploitation targeting these populations. By the way, people of color as well on the outside, and there's a lot of overlap. So there is immense mistrust, like a legacy of mistrust already in place. And don't forget that until very, very recently, we were still sterilizing women in California prisons without their consent. The memory of this pain and this exploitation is very recent. And because of that, there's already a lot of mistrust. And on top of that, we have the last nine months in which at every opportunity that CDCR had to do the right thing, they did the opposite. Bunn agrees. We met Bunn in the first part of this series. He was in San Quentin during an outbreak of COVID-19. And when I talked to Bunn about how prison officials had dealt with COVID, he actually started to laugh. Because it's so ridiculous how they did it. It's like every decision CDC made during that time to even contain it was all wrong and, and uncaring. Bun watched prison officials moving inmates from cell to cell in the middle of the pandemic. And they're not testing them as they're moving them within the prison. And I was like, what are they doing? They're trying to kill us. He saw guards refusing to wear masks. They had their masks like on their, on their neck, below their nose. He watched his friends and fellow prisoners struggle to keep themselves safe 
and yet they succumb to COVID. I used to talk to my friend Eric Warner, and he's like, man, I'm worried. If I catch it, I'm going to die. And I knew he, he had respiratory problems and stuff like that. And he was the, like the first dude. He made his own mask. He's like, he has two masks on at all times. Even when he's working out, he's always clean. But then he's the, he's the guy that died in, of COVID in there, one of my friend. He had COVID and passed away. Because of his experience, when Bun was asked to get a COVID test, he refused. I looked at it, I said, I'm not going to test. You're in somewhere where you don't have no information, where you're, you don't trust the word of, of a physician. Like, I don't, I don't really trust you because you work for CDCR, and they've been literally, they're trying to kill me. His experience is common. Many prisoners don't trust CDCR, so forcibly vaccinating prisoners isn't an ethical option. Public health is about honoring that history and everything. It's not about forcing you to get a vaccine. It shouldn't be. That's Vasi Ryasam from the Stop San Quentin Outbreak Coalition. And so it's important to give folks who are incarcerated access to neutral and clear educational materials, answer their questions, totally great, and then give them the option of getting it or not getting it. Swati also worries that a vaccine that protects prisoners against COVID doesn't really solve the bigger problem. Because as many experts have warned, COVID isn't the first pandemic and is definitely not going to be the last. It is really critical that these downstream medical treatments not be mistaken for upstream solutions to this problem, right? Like COVID-19 is the vector by which we got this disease, but the upstream problem, the upstream cause is the carceral system. Prisons in California and across the U.S. are not high on the vaccine priority list. Nonetheless, about 33,000 prisoners have received the first dose of the vaccine, along with about 25,000 staff. But 50% of staff in prisons say that they're reluctant to get the vaccine. And disease experts worry that as mutations increase, we're heading towards vaccine-resistant variants of COVID and possibly reinfection. So currently, Immunization is not the most effective response to COVID, and that still leaves us with the question of releases. As we talked about in the first part of this series, because of the crowded and unsanitary conditions within prisons, medical experts have argued that reducing the prison population across California institutions by 50% is the only way to stop the pandemic. So let's say that we do take mass releases seriously. A 50% reduction in the prison population is huge. How would it work? Here's Hadar Aviram. If we're looking at the entire prison system and you're asking me, well, can we reduce the whole population of the prison system by 50%? Yes. If we wanted to do it, we could do it today. Again, about a quarter of the people in prison are 50 years old and up. Those folks are people who have aged out of violent crime. They can be with an ankle monitor on the outside. They're going to be no risk to anybody. The vast majority of women in California prisons have experienced themselves such deeply traumatized lives that a lot of times it's difficult to entangle what they had done from what had been done to them. Generally speaking, again, not a dangerous population. All of our women's prisons could be emptied. All of these people could be with ankle monitors on the outside. Half of the people in California are people that by CDCR's own definitions are defined as low risk. Again, 
Should these people be in prison at a time like this? Probably not. It's unlikely that California will empty women's prisons or release most people over the age of 50. But even if we were to take a more conservative approach, CDCR still seems hesitant. CDCR has not attempted any type of large-scale release plan for the people who are most medically vulnerable, who also happen to be the people who are safest to release. That's James King from the Ella Baker Center. His colleague, Adam Chan shares his frustration. It's, it's been really difficult to kind of witness the fact that across the board, there has been a recognition that carceral facilities are not safe and that people who are inside are at risk. And that with that evidence and with those facts, CDCR and the governor's office still refuse to really seriously consider mass releases, which are not unsafe. But for many of the advocates I talked to, the most difficult aspect has been the lack of response from California's governor, Gavin Newsom. Governor Newsom holds a lot of power in this conversation. The bottom line is that he actually has at his disposal several levers that he can push to make this better. So there is a provision in the California Constitution that allows him to release part or even all of California's prison population in an emergency. I think this easily fits the definition of an emergency. He has parole powers. So all the people who have been recommended for parole by the parole board, he can approve. He can he can expedite his approval to get people out. There is nothing to stop that from happening except for lack of political goodwill. We also know that we are dealing with a person who is fundamentally a good and decent person who has done the good and decent thing oftentimes against what he perceived to be public opinion, like with the same-sex marriage issue, like with the death penalty moratorium issue, and just recently uh, uh, submitted an amicus brief in a case arguing that the death penalty is administered in a racially discriminatory way. Now, I am sure the irony is not lost on him that more people have died of COVID-19 on death row under his moratorium than we've executed since 1978, since the death penalty has been back on the books. We were unable to get an interview with Gavin Newsom, but here he is during a COVID briefing in December of 2020. Uh, We have reduced the census, the total population since March by over 21,000 individuals, over 21,000. This is almost without precedent in California's history. And you could see some of the work we've done to do uh, that, meaning we've looked on early release for what we refer to as non-non-nons, uh, people that have uh, X number of weeks, months left on their sentences. But those people would have been released soon anyway. As for large-scale releases? I simply will not, en masse, release people without looking individual by individual. Activists have been targeting Gavin Newsom for months, trying to pressure him to act on COVID-19 in prisons, and they continue to hold rallies about mass releases as the pandemic wears on. We want to end our piece by talking about the fate of people who gained their freedom during the pandemic. Because even if prisoners are not released on a mass scale, people are being let go almost daily. Like, even in a world where we do not have a pandemic or COVID, people, thousands of people are released from prison because their sentences are up every month anyway. Those people are still getting out. They've completed their time. 
And because of the early release programs that Gavin Newsom mentioned, we've actually never released this many people, especially in the middle of a global pandemic. So what happens to people who gain their freedom? For most people, re-entry means that they simply return to their loved ones, and that's still true even during COVID. What I can say is that the number one re-entry provider for people who are released from prisons are their families. According to CDCR's own data, 70% of the people they release um, just go home. The other 30%, there's Project Hope, there's Project Room Key, and other resources available to support them upon re-entry. That's James King again, and he's right. A lot of people do have support on the outside. And it's a stereotype to think of all released prisoners as ending up homeless or unemployed. This notion that releases would somehow create a a housing situation or a homeless problem, I think is just another way of othering people who are incarcerated. But the pandemic has created a completely new and challenging situation. And the truth is, a lot can go wrong. Bun, for example, was sick when he was released from San Quentin. When I paroled, the nurse saw me. She said, you didn't get a COVID test. I said, no, I refuse. She goes, we're supposed to give you a COVID test today, but you're getting out, so go ahead. Checked me, everything cleared me, gave me the medication that I had, and said, you're cleared, you're cleared to leave. He wasn't trying to endanger anyone. He just wanted to get out. I tried to say goodbye to all the people I knew in, in, in my block. They were all sick. All they could say, like, bro, good luck, we're sick. He also wasn't given much direction when he was released. He was just given a little money and sent on his way. They dropped me off at the bus station. I didn't know what to do. So I got on the bus and just, it said San Francisco. I just got on the bus. I've been in prison for 23 years. Never been on like a bus ride for that long or seen people moving so fast. So I'm, I'm getting motion sickness. I'm getting a temperature. I'm starting to hallucinate. It's a common story. I talked to an organizer working on re-entry programs in Los Angeles to understand how much harder freedom has become during COVID. My name is Rojas. I use they, them pronouns, and I'm the site director of the Young Women's Freedom Center in L.A. Since COVID, we ran a home-free emergency housing, COVID emergency housing. Uh, We provided like three meals a day, virtual programming, including self-determination planning, harm reduction, and NA support. And we provided transportation, basic toiletries, clothing, and supplies. Rojas says that while it's true that many people do have families waiting for them, it's not always easy to go home. Like, one will be on parole, and so you can't parole to that house, so you can't always go with family. You know, you'll be violated just for that. And many former prisoners have lost support because of COVID. I mean, a lot of them have family members, grandparents, parents who've died. So it's, it's, it's a lot harder. Like they're getting out to a whole different world. I asked Rojas if they had worked with anyone who'd gotten COVID since being released. Yeah, I have. Someone I know was recently released and caught COVID uh, about a month after they were out and they just died. To finally get out and, and, and not know about this pandemic, not know how to protect yourself and, and you die right away, you just never had a chance. That's a lot of our folks. Across the country, re-entry programs are struggling to deal with the surge of early releases during the pandemic. Some transitional programs won't accept people being released because prisons are inconsistently testing people and just sending them home, like in Bun's case. And re-entry programs are understaffed 
and vastly underfunded. We can't just release people. If we don't also provide re-entry support for the formerly incarcerated, we continue to put them at heightened risk of catching COVID and dying from it. The good news is that people who are provided with support upon release can thrive. Bun, for example, was lucky. When he was released, various nonprofit and religious organizations stepped in to help him. I was free, and the community came in and saved my life. They came together, like APSC, ALC, the religious uh, community had a quarantine spot for me, dropped food off for me, that made sure they called until I woke up, check on what temperature it is, what's my oxygen level. I have, my oxygen level is so low, I had to go to the hospital. They took me to the hospital. Like, I couldn't even walk a couple yards without just falling over, coughing, and it was just so bad, I couldn't do nothing. He thinks the reason he's alive right now is because he was able to get out of San Quentin into the free world. I would have died. I would have died if I, if I was in prison. I would have died if I went to the detention center. The day I talked to him, it's a beautiful day in Oakland. I'm thinking about after the interview, going fishing, taking the boy out for scootering, you know, maybe even give him a haircut. I don't know. <laughs> Does he, need a he needs a haircut, but he, he wants to go scootering, so we're going to have to just talk him into it. But even though he's doing well, he has mixed feelings about his freedom. It's bittersweet because, yeah, I'm free, but I'm not free because I have friends in there. I do have survivor's guilt because my, friend, my friends did die. I have friends in there that's going through a hard time. Uh, they're having symptoms after COVID like I had, and I, I, I could relate to that, understand how it is. Two of my close friends died. What hit me the most is Eric. I was talking to him every day. And he was so worried about it. And we're like, yeah, bro. And we had a lot of conversation. And he gave me a lot of positive conversation before I came home. Like, he died 17 days, I think, after I was released. And I heard the news that he passed. We, were, we, we lived together for two years. And when I heard he died, I was like, that hit me. I was like, I don't know what CDCR is reporting, but they're killing people. We're just jumping in to remind you that you're listening to an encore of The Pandemic Inside, COVID and Prisons Part 2. This piece actually aired last year, but is unfortunately still relevant to what's happening today. If you'd like to get behind-the-scenes information on all of our shows, including new ones on COVID, please visit us at radioproject.org. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Making Contact. We've been focused on prisons until now, but COVID-19 is also burning through jails infecting thousands, and jails are also incredibly overcrowded. Because of this, COVID has forced a change in one of the most pernicious criminal justice issues affecting people across this country. Pre-trial detention. Renata Sago brings us this story from a South Florida jail. Dwayne Simon is in the visitation area of the Joseph V. Conti facility in Broward County when we speak. We're talking through a video app. The connection is shaky. My life is at risk in here. We're nine months into the pandemic. Jails across the country have become hotspots for COVID-19. Dwayne says he's heard that his bed belonged to someone with the virus. I had somebody come and bring some um, antiseptic spray. Things of that nature that would just just ease 
He says his diabetes has gotten worse while in custody and that he's heard the nurse who cared for him died of COVID-19. I contact the health agency that works with the jail and don't get a response. By now, more than 160 staff across Broward County jails have tested positive for the coronavirus. About 130 people in custody have, too. I've seen people with worse situations than me. I've sat here and prayed for people with worse situations than me and their home. When news of the virus broke, Dwayne was coming up on 20 months at Conti. He went into custody for four charges. All of them came with a bond, except one. An alleged kidnapping involving a woman who had a warrant out for her arrest. Right as the pandemic hit, Dwayne was scheduled to go before a judge to try to prove his innocence. His trial was postponed. And I was scared out of my mind because I didn't know what was going to happen. Across the United States, criminal justice reform advocates were concerned, too. How would jails respond in a pandemic when even before then they had problems? Jails and prisons in New York, New Jersey, California, and other states began releasing people with low-risk charges from custody. Community bail funds raised money, too. When a deadly outbreak reached the Cook County Jail last April, the bail project raised enough money to release hundreds of people from custody. The killing of George Floyd by a police officer added to that momentum. Pilar Weiss is with the National Bail Fund Network. She estimates organizations brought in $75 million after protests across the country. But her network was only able to release a small group of people. In sort of popular culture and in sort of broad media coverage, often the issue is covered as end money bail or cash bail, right? Like that's the focus. Um, But actually most organizers working in this space, and particularly community bail and bond funds, are advocating for an end to pretrial detention because they understand that money bail is only one part of it. Raising bail does not work to get everyone out of jail. That's because some charges carry no bond. These are charges that are more serious and may be punishable by life in prison, like homicide or armed kidnapping. A bond can be revoked for violating probation and the terms of release or missing a court date. There's no nationwide data tracking of no bond charges. But in Broward County jails, the rate of people in custody with no bond charges is high, 77%. Shima Boffman is a law professor at the University of Utah. For about a decade, she's been researching pretrial detention in the United States. So constitutionally, every defendant should have the right to release before trial. It's part of a due process right, as well as the presumption of innocence that all defendants from the beginning of the Magna Carta to the founding of the United States have always had. Over at the Broward County Sheriff's Office, the head of pretrial services, David Scharf, says there's a misconception about people with no bond charges. People think, well, they're, they're just put in there to wait. No, it's not the case. There's mandatory motions and hearings and things that go along with uh, with the process to assure that due process is, is upheld and that these folks have an opportunity to present their case that they can be released safely into the community. But again, that, that decision lies solely with the discretion of the court. 
David's team has been using risk assessments to determine whether people in custody should be eligible for pretrial release. These assessments are based on a few factors like prior convictions, education level, and financial stability. Judges use that data to make decisions on pretrial release. Having information in front of you not not always gives you the best results, but at least lets the judges make a decision based on science. In a report from 2009, researchers found that Broward County's risk assessment was not so scientific, that it was based on a sample size that didn't truly reflect certain groups in custody, primarily women, Latinos, and sex offenders. And Broward County doesn't even give risk assessments to people in custody facing no bond charges. So there's a lot of activity in the chat area right now. So I'm I'm writing down a lot of notes, but it sounds like every year the National Association of Pretrial Services Agencies or NAPSA convenes to talk about jail reform. Last September, the group held a virtual conference to talk solutions in the midst of COVID-19. NAPSA surveyed pretrial agencies across the country asking how they were responding to the pandemic. Most jurisdictions said they'd released more people from custody. Jim Sawyer heads NAPSA. We didn't see negative results around um, reporting to court, being accountable to court, um, or new criminal activity or public safety issues. Risk assessments weren't on the survey. But Sawyer says giving them to every defendant in custody, no matter the charge, is one solution to reducing pretrial detention. It's an in-or-out decision. Are you staying in custody or are you out of custody pretrial? Um, and then if you're out of custody, what um, conditions do I want to put on your release? You know, do you need to check in once a week with your pretrial officer? Do you need to have drug testing? Do you need... Uh, to be seen by a mental health specialist. In Nevada, Texas, and Massachusetts, bills calling for an end to money bill or providing risk assessment tools to judges have advanced. Shima Boffman with the University of Utah published research last year that found risk assessments have serious biases based on factors that assume people's criminality. Even the ones that are touted to be the most promising um, discriminate on the basis of Uh, race, uh, socioeconomic status. For people with no bond charges in Broward County, the most immediate help has come from local organizations like Chainless Change. Mark Mitchell is executive director. He's been in video visitations with clients since last March. We're dealing with a gentleman who's been incarcerated in Broward for about three years, and he hasn't saw his attorney in the past two years. Um, no one's communicated with him. He even tried to get rid of that attorney um, and have someone else appointed by the courts because he had not saw the attorney in two years. And the local judge um, rejected that request. When the pandemic hit, Mark and his team began protesting about the conditions inside the jails. They also created a special hotline for people in custody to call and report what they were dealing with. Mark says before the pandemic, people wanted to get out of custody so badly that they'd take a plea during their hearing, even if they had previously maintained their innocence. Now it's worse. Criminal justice reform advocates I spoke to say pretrial releases at the start of the pandemic created an illusion of progress. For Shima Boffman, one step to change the system 
is to modify how people are charged. Prosecutors are charging um, three offenses, for instance, when they could charge one. Pilar Weiss with the National Bail Fund Network says the jail system needs a complete overhaul. We need investment in housing, <laughs> right? You need mental health care services, health care services, child care, right, jobs. None of these are going to be solved with incarceration. None of them are going to be solved with pre-child detention. It's February when Dwayne Simon and I speak again. He's sitting inside the visitation area of Conti, clutching the phone close to his ear. He's got a cloth mask on. That's about the best day that has happened. Let's get His attorney says the earliest he could go before a judge to defend himself against his charges is in July. But that's just a guess. That was Renata Sago reporting from South Florida. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. To learn more, please visit us at radioproject.org. On Facebook, we're Making Contact. And on Instagram, we're Making Contact Radio Project. The Making Contact team includes Sonia Green, Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, Sabine Blazin, and I'm Salima Hamarani. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.